So I spent the earlier years of church work working with teenagers and children in urban areas, first in Chicago and then in Los Angeles. In both of those places, we took the kids, teenagers or children, each summer on a camping trip. So the kids in Chicago, we took to Michigan. Kids in California, we took to Lake Shasta in Northern California. And these are kids that never left the city. And that became abundantly obvious as we were driving out in the countryside in a bus on our way to our campsite. They got real excited and started yelling, looking out the window, look at that, look at that, look at that. And I expected to see some kind of exotic creature like a bear, maybe Bigfoot. He's out there. But I, I walked over to the window and they were looking at horses. They had never seen a horse in real life. And so I thought, this is too good to not exploit. So that evening when we made camp, we headed into the woods for a snipe hunt. If you've never been on a snipe hunt, they're little birds. They only come out at night. They run along the ground. You can't use flashlights because you'll scare them. You need a pillowcase to catch them. The hard part about it is they don't actually exist. However, after a while, the kids started saying things like, I almost caught one. One just ran between my legs. They started to see things that were not there, and they chased things that did not exist. The snipe was simply the figment of some creative imagination. I've come to believe it's very easy to allow the life of faith to turn into a religious snipe hunt, chasing things that have very little to do with the way of Jesus and creating imaginary expectations and beliefs that actually do not exist in the Bible. So by the time we come to the New Testament, the life of Jesus, religion had become incredibly legalistic, drained of life, filled with impossible rules. The Jewish people for hundreds of years followed the 613 rules found in the Old Testament. However, because they were afraid to break one of those rules, they created rules on top of their rules on top of their rules that they called fences to keep them from even getting close to maybe possibly breaking one of the 613 rules laws. After a while, it seemed like they were chasing religious snipes and in some cases exploiting people. But at that same time, the world was alive with messianic expectation, a belief that a Messiah would come and save his people from oppression. The gospel of John was written to prove that Jesus was in fact that Messiah. Towards the end of John's gospel, he writes, But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In John's gospel, the gospel which we're spending the summer together in, he wastes no time getting right to his theological point. He wastes no time uh, sharing with us the teaching and person of Christ. In his gospel, there are no lengthy genealogies. In the gospel of John, there is no birth story, no Christmas story. There's no childhood narrative of Jesus. Right in the beginning of this gospel, John introduces a concept that is very foreign to both Jewish and Roman culture, and that is the concept of, of grace. John chapter 1, verse 17, he writes, For the law... The rules were given through Moses. Grace and truth 
came through Jesus Christ. The Jews of the day were very busy following the law, making sacrifices to God on behalf of sin. And the Romans were spending their time appealing to the Greek gods that maybe they could appease them. Maybe they could make them happy and find favor. And so Jesus comes as the full manifestation of God, full of this thing called grace, but also full of truth. Last weekend, one of our elders, Paul Kepis, did a great job breaking this down for us. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and listen or watch. But what he talked about last week was, was grace being unmerited favor. It's something we do not deserve. It is something we cannot earn. And so Jesus comes and says, I offer you life. It's not something you can, can earn, only, only receive. But Jesus was not only full of grace, he was also full of truth. I believe in the scripture there are two expressions of truth. Uh, The first is truth defined by objective fact. There are some things that are facts of life. I think we do get confused between objective fact and observed opinion. So I'm going to give you an objective fact. I am five foot, nine inches tall. I know that because I go to my doctor for my annual physical. They take my height and I am five foot, nine inches tall. That is a fact. Now my brother's, say, well, you're short because they're both 6'4", which I don't, still don't know how that happened. My wife, though she might not say I'm tall, she certainly wouldn't say I'm short because she's 5'3". Neither of them are speaking truth. They're both just speaking their opinion. The only truth is I'm 5'9", tall. It's an objective fact. Truth is objective fact. However, Jesus also comes and mixes things up when he says, truth is also a person. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So within the Christian worldview, truth, most importantly, is is expressed as a person, as God revealed. So in the first half of the Gospel of John chapter 1, John is laying out the theological foundation of who Jesus is. But the second half of chapter one, we shift from theological discourse to narrative and story. So today we turn to John chapter one, beginning in verse 29. The next day, John, speaking of John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So we've got this character named John the Baptist who is this zealous, eclectic prophet, a man who lives out in the desert, dresses in camel hair. He eats uh, locusts and wild honey, which we're going to start serving in the cafe to be biblical. He's an interesting guy, but he will never take credit for being the Messiah. His job was to solely point to Jesus. 
Verse 35, the next day John was there with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by. And again, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. This is about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which is translated as Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that, he added. Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. I want to spend the next few moments centering on three phrases that Jesus speaks from this passage's phrase that are completely full of grace and yet are completely full of truth. Three very simple things. First, Jesus says, come and you will see. Then Jesus says, follow me. And he follows that up with, you will see greater things. This scene and these words, these simple phrases from Jesus, I believe form the ethos of what we now know as the Christian faith. And it begins with three words, come and see. With these three words, Jesus was appealing to human curiosity. Back to John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, John was there with his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by. And he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. So you've got these two guys. They're called disciples of John the Baptist. More about disciples in a minute. These guys were incredibly curious about Jesus, the one whom John refers to as the Lamb of God. And so they approach Jesus in a bit of a nervous, awkward moment. And Jesus says, what do you want? Now, that statement actually means, what is it that you're seeking? Like, what are you looking for? Because I think we're all seeking something. We're all looking for something. It's a question we're all asked at some point in our life. Jesus, in asking this question, wants to know, are these guys just motivated by idle curiosity? Or do they really have a desire to know him? And so they ask him, Jesus, where are you staying? Which to the modern here is a bit of an odd question. 
Like, where are you staying? Like, if two complete strangers walked up to me and said, hey, um, Mike, where are you staying? I'd give them John Malstead's address because I don't want them showing up in my house. I don't know who you are. But in Jesus' day, it meant something very, very different. It was actually a courteous way of requesting an appointment. What they were saying is, could we please send, spend some time with you because we might want to be your disciples? These guys were curiously hungry for something of substance, something real. Curiosity is a big part of my own faith story. I mean, often you hear of people having a, a crisis in which they find Jesus in the midst of the crisis. Well, my, my story is not one of crisis. I, I, when I came to know Christ, I, I wasn't in the middle of anything crazy. I, I was a teenager and was experiencing like normal teenage angst, but there was no crisis. I went to church because someone invited me and I had nothing better to do. And I heard there were cute girls there, so I went. And that was it. But when I, I got there, what I experienced piqued my curiosity. It got my attention, captured my imagination. There was something about that experience and something about those people that I could not fully grasp, that I did not understand. There was something about this Jesus of the Bible that I had never heard before. And I wasn't fully sure what I believed, but I knew there was something about all this. There was just something about the Jesus of the Bible, the true Jesus of the Bible, that captivates the soul and activates like a true longing for something. I mean, maybe you're here this weekend or joining us online, and you're new to this whole Christian thing, and you don't fully understand it, but you are curious about it. There's something that's tugging at you. Or maybe... Maybe you've been a Christian a long, long time and you have lost your sense of curiosity. You've lost your sense of wonder. Religion has become a rote exercise. At Northbrook, we use three words to kind of organize the way we do ministry in life. Those three words are discover, grow, and share. It is our hope, it is my hope that every person that walks through the doors of this church or views this online can discover the incredible life that Christ offers, a life that he refers to as abundant. All those years ago, that church and that message that piqued my curiosity started me on a journey, a way of life that is incredible. Not easy, not perfect, but I feel more alive because of Jesus than I ever felt before. But it doesn't just stop there. Jesus uttered a second phrase. It's two simple words. He says, follow me. Those two words were an invitation to be with him, to learn from him, and become like him. So they went, and they saw where Jesus was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we've found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which is translated as Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Those two words completely form the totality of Jesus' expectations. 
Now, there's a whole lot wrapped up in those two words. What we do notice in the New Testament is that Jesus never used the word Christian and never gave his followers the title Christian. The early church never referred to themselves as Christians. In the Bible, the word that Christians referred to themselves was the word saints. The term Christian was not used until the book of Acts, chapter 11, in the city of Antioch. And it was used by outsiders to describe a group of people who were acting in a peculiar way, who were different, but they were all the same in heart and mind and in unity. The group was so distinct that they were given a new name. They were called Christians, which means little Christ, which means they act like Jesus. When Jesus used those words, follow me, he was inviting all of us, really, to be his disciple, which is a word that's used in both the Gospels and the book of Acts. It was an offer. It was not a demand. I don't believe you can force faith. It's been tried in the Middle Ages when Christian nations would conquer their enemies. Their prisoners were given two options, be baptized into Christianity or die. As a result, the conversion rate was pretty high, as you can imagine. But Jesus' offer was never forced. Becoming a disciple wasn't something that started with Jesus. It wasn't anything new. In Jesus' day, becoming a disciple was an invitation to follow a rabbi. If someone were invited to be a disciple, they would spend a lengthy time with a rabbi or a teacher, hearing, observing, and imitating them. They would become like him in thought, in character, and in ability. Now, in the days of Jesus... This was a very, very formal process of learning that began around five or six years old. When children would go to the temple, they would learn, they would memorize and recite scripture from the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible. Now I can tell you when my kids were five and six, they were not memorizing the Old Testament. But in Jesus' day, things were different. This first step was called Bet Sefer, which led to a second step called Bet Tamuld, which lasted until the age of 12 years old. At this age, they would learn to interpret and apply the scriptures. Now, for most kids, most Jewish kids, it stopped there. They would then go and learn the family business. They would then go into a trade. But for the best of the best of the best, they would enter a third phase called Bet Midrash. And the most gifted would begin to memorize the first five books of the Bible in its entirety, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, they would memorize it. They would take the prophets, the words of the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they would memorize it. They would memorize all of the Jewish scriptures. And the best of the best of the best would hear these two words from a rabbi that they would long to hear. Follow me. Come and follow me. Come and be like me. They would eventually become rabbis themselves. But Jesus comes, and his invitation is a bit different. It's a bit more informal and really radical. He doesn't follow the steps. The people that he invited, they didn't make it to the third step because they were already on their way in their vocation. They were not the best of the best of the best. They were also a bit older, at least some of them, than the traditional disciple. Traditionally, disciples were 13, 14, or 15 years old. But we know Peter was married, and in Jesus' day... Men typically didn't marry that young. And Matthew, who was already in his career as a tax collector, was not the best of the best. He was actually the worst of the worst 
of the worst. And they were invited. Jesus said, come and learn from me. Be like me. Our faith, it's not just learning stuff about God. I think we cheapen our faith when it is reduced to an intellectual exercise. What it is, it's about being with Jesus. It's about becoming like him. I did not marry my wife so I could learn stuff about her. I married my wife so I could be with her. At Northbrook, we have a second word. That's the word grow. It is our desire. It is my desire. It is my passion that you would grow in your faith, that you would thrive in your faith. The truth is, now lean in with me here just because you know I love you, right? Like just, just lean in together. You know who bears the weight of that responsibility? You do. Now what I can do is I can set the table. I can provide opportunity. It's why this last year I challenged this church to read through the New Testament together. We've got study guides. If you've not joined us, let please join us. It's why we have next steps. It's why we have small groups and all kinds of stuff. I have friends that are pastors all over the city, all over the country, really. And we talk about life in church. And from time to time, a congregation member will come to any of us and say, hey, I'm not really growing. And sometimes the implication is it's kind of your fault. Listen, again, I, I, I love you. I love this church. I'm not trying to be a jerk or shaming But if you're not growing, you know whose fault it is. It's yours. We live in a day of incredible, incredible access to everything. As I observe the Christian landscape, I fear, I'm afraid, that we have reduced Christianity to inviting Jesus into your heart, which ironically is a statement that's never actually used in the Bible. See, what... What John reminds us of is that it is not just an invitation to invite Jesus into our heart. It is an invitation to follow him and become like him. The most robust description in all the Bible of a disciple, I believe, is found in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Just listen to these words. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, But now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, 
kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Like, that's what I want to be. Now, I'm not there. I sometimes get angry. I know it's hard to believe, but I get angry sometimes. And sometimes filthy language slips from my lips. I'm a parent. You're laughing because you know it's true. But I want to be that. I want to live that way. And yet, I think if we all take a deep, honest look, in the Christian church, maybe most particularly recently, there's just been a lot of un-Jesus-y behavior. I think Jesus calls us to something better, something bigger, something more life-giving. We all know the name Martin Luther King Jr. We know him because of his social justice work. But before he did that work, he was a pastor. He gave a sermon that many of us are unfamiliar with called Paul's Letter to American Christians. It was a sermon he delivered at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church on November 4th, 1956 in Montgomery, Alabama. In his sermon, he was writing as if he were the Apostle Paul writing to the American church in 1956. This is what he writes. This is what he speaks. But I understand that there are many Christians in America who give their ultimate allegiance to man-made systems and customs. They are afraid to be different. Their great concern is to be accepted socially. They live by some principles as this. Everybody's doing it. So it must be all right. For so many, morality is merely group consensus. In your modern sociological lingo, the mores are accepted as the right ways. You have unconsciously come to believe that right is discovered by taking a sort of Gallup poll of majority opinion. How many are giving their ultimate allegiance to this way? You are dual citizens. You live both in time and eternity, both in heaven and earth. Therefore, your ultimate allegiance is not to the government, not to the state, not to the nation, not to any man-made institution. The Christian owes his ultimate allegiance to God. And if any earthly institution conflicts with God's will, it is your Christian duty to take a stand against it. I am afraid that many among you are more concerned about making a living than making a life. I don't want to be afraid to be different. Jesus asks us to be different. He asks us to live a life with God. And as a result, what he says to us, when you live this way, you will see greater things, which I believe is an invitation to immeasurable possibilities. Verse 47. 
When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that, he added. Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God descending and ascending on the son of man. Jesus invited his disciples to something so much bigger. They would see crowds and miracles and healings and life change. And that same invitation is then extended to us. Towards the end of John, Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus says, Very truly, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. There's a third word that we use at Northbrook, and that's the word share. We want to be a group of people who share our life with the world. Because the truth is the only thing that I can do is I can share my life and I can point people to Jesus and that's it. The rest is the work of the Holy Spirit. As a community of faith, we are part of something filled with immeasurable possibilities. Because you share your life, we get the opportunity to see miracles happen. In this church, we have seen the miracle of marriages being healed and restored because a group of Northbrookers choose to invest in the lives of struggling marriages. As a church, the poor and the homeless are served through our partnership with Family Promise and the Milwaukee Rescue Mission. We get to see the miracle of the poor lifted out of poverty. Because of your giving, because of your generosity, we've built a school in Ghana, Africa. We've built drop-in centers in India for children of prostitutes who are victim of human trafficking. We've seen the miracle of life change. And right now, we are in the midst of partnering with a church plant in the city of Milwaukee, which you'll hear more about if you come to our annual meeting. All of this is a work of God's grace. All of its grace. And through several simple phrases, Jesus invites you to be a part. For those that are curious, he says, come and see. For those that have leaned into him, he says, come and follow me. And for those of us that are following, he says, you're going to see greater things than you could have ever or hoped or imagined. So if you're here today and, you know, you, you've maybe lost your sense of curiosity and your one, your, and wonder, I, I want to invite you today to discover the Jesus of the Bible. Not, not the Jesus of institutional Christianity, the Jesus of the Bible. And if you're here and you're a follower, I encourage you to, to do more than just show up at church once in a while, but to, to really lean into him and become like him, to engage the scriptures, to engage community. And for those of you that are doing that, I invite you to share your life, to partner with us to see greater things in our world, all because of his grace that's extended to each one of us. And so God, we are so thankful for that grace Would you engage our curiosity? Would you give us the strength to follow you wherever you lead us, wherever you go? May we become like you in our thoughts and our actions and our words. I know we will never be perfect this side of heaven, but help us each day 
to wake up a bit more like you. And may we never lose sight of our mission to share our life with the world around us, to extend the hands and feet of Christ into the world. Thanks, God. Amen.